uh, to do that. I see a number of you that are here that ran this morning. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I, I love that idea. That would be the greatest excuse ever to not have to go to church. It's, I just ran a marathon. I mean, come on, for crying out loud, I ran a marathon. Um, but you're here, which is tremendous. How awesome is that? Way to go. Very proud. Anybody run the marathon or part of it or half of it or walked it? There you go. I, um, I, we walked up here to set up this morning, and of course, I mean, the marathon, as excited as we all are, it really is a mess on traffic. I mean, come on. You can't even get here. And of course, we're on the route. So we were waiting on, uh, on the Will Rogers people to show up and let us in, and we were standing out there on the corner, and, and this is mile seven. So right outside Will Rogers Theater is mile seven. And at 9.30, we're standing out there. Now, the race starts at 6.30. There are people cruising past us at 9.30, and I'm thinking, if you're still at mile seven on three hours, this is going to be a real long day, right? It's going to be a real, some guy with a walker's coming down, you know, I'm going, and you know those people handing out water are going, really? I mean, we're still here handing out water? Um, but anyway, we were proud, of, and you know, when the, when the truck with all the cones that's picking up the race course is right behind you, you know it's time to get moving a little bit, and so that poor lady that the truck is behind, he was like, mm-hmm, she's going, I'm going, I'm going, you know, that's going to be a long way out to Hefner in the wind, that's for sure, but anyway, we're glad you guys are, are here. I'm going to pass something out real quick. If you're here for the very first time with us, we've got these silver buckets, and in these silver buckets are a couple of get-to-know-you cards. We want to be able to uh, track your presence with us. On one side is a, a communication card. Fill it out. We'll add you to our weekly email. Um, plus, we've got some treasures we want to give you. And if you, if you just want us to pray for something, on the back side of that card is a prayer card. You can either leave them under your seat on the way out today or drop them off in the offering basket. Either way, we'd love to have record of your presence. If you are not getting our weekly communication, our email, then we don't have your email address in our system. So fill one of those cards out. And uh, we'll make sure that that gets added. This is not an offering basket. If you want to contribute to the ministry here and what we're doing as part of our community life, there's an offering table in the back. Feel free to uh, empty the lint out of your pockets into, uh, into that. This morning, we've been ra- we're going to wrap up this series we've been working on for 11 weeks, this What I Believe series, this idea of saying, what do we do with and believe about the basics of Christian theology and way of life? And we have unpacked a lot of things over these 11 weeks. We've unpacked communion and baptism and sin and grace and redemption. We've unpacked worship and the Bible. We've unpacked evangelism. We've, we've looked at a lot of things to say, what do we believe about these basics of Christian theology and the Christian way of life? What do we, what do we really believe? And, and, you know, I've kind of mentioned this a few times, but it all began with this conversation I had with this friend of mine who said, Treb, somebody at work the other day asked me what I believe about God. And I said, well, what did you tell him? And he said, well, I didn't really know what to say. I mean, I knew what I believed, but I didn't really know how to articulate it. And so it really kind of got me thinking, saying, how many of us really are are able to know and articulate what we believe about some of the basics of our Christian life. So we've been unpacking a lot of these things. And, and we've coming off a two-week kind of piece of evangelism. We talked about uh, that in two parts, and we finished that up a little bit last week in the park. And we're really wrapping everything up here at this 11-week series with this idea of mission. What do we believe about mission? And, and primarily, what do we believe about, about foreign mission, about living outside of these walls and experiencing a global perspective um, on the world? Because it is really important. A lot of us come to the table with a lot of different thoughts about mission. For some of us, we grew up in a church where once a year a missionary would come. 
The guy that we support or the girl that we support that's from a far off land and they'd come to our church and they'd show slides and they'd have pictures of people that we've never seen before and they'd tell great stories. And, and that was our experience with mission. And we all take up an offering and, and buy something for them. For some of us, we come to the table and our experience with mission is mission is what youth groups do on spring break. They go to Mexico and they build a house and they all come back with really amazing stories. And we all are really excited that our young people are out there doing something besides going to South Padre Island and whatever on their spring break. And, and we're excited about that. But, you, but mission's a real youth-driven kind of thing. For some of us, mission is that, that thing in our lives that we really wish we want to do, that sort of dream to go to a far-off place and, and do something really great. But, but when we really push ourselves on the inside, we, we say, I don't have enough faith, or I don't have enough time, or I just can't. And it's just always something that we'd always really like to do in the back of our mind, but have never really experienced. For some of us, mission is a frustration. It's a frustration that we send dollars and people to a faraway land when we have people in our own city um, that don't have enough bread to eat. The reality is we all come with a different picture and understanding of mission. And much like evangelism, which we talked about last week, uh, mission is really about perspective. It all boils down to our perspective. And, and my question is, I wonder how many of us really have a strong global perspective, an understanding of the world. I'm going to read you something, and, and I've got copies of it back there on our global mission table, so you're welcome to take a look at it. But, it, but I want you to think about a global mindset for a second. And the 6.5 billion people <clears throat> that populate this earth, if you were to take all the statistics of <clears throat> religion and languages and, and whatnot, and you were to shrink it all down, and we were to be a village of a hundred... So the entire world's population was going to be represented by a hundred people. This is what the makeup would be. If there were only a hundred people in, a vill- in our village, there would be 60 Asians, 14 Africans, 12 Europeans, 8 people from Central and South America, Mexico and the Caribbean, 5 people from the USA and Canada, and 1 person from Australia or New Zealand. These people in our village, they would have considerable difficulty communicating. Fourteen people would speak Mandarin. Eight people would speak Hindu uh, or Hindi. Eight would speak English. Seven would speak Spanish. Four would speak Russian. Four would speak Arabic. The other villagers, this only makes up half of them, the other villagers would speak in descending order these languages, Bengali, Portuguese, Indonesian, Japanese, German, French. And between the hundred, we'd speak over 200 different languages. In our village, there'd be 33 Christians, 22 Muslims, 15 Hindus, 14 non-religious or atheists, 6 Buddhists, and 10 of all other world religions. In our village, out of the 100, 80 of us would live in substandard housing. 67 adults would live in the village, and half of them would be illiterate. 50 would suffer from malnutrition. 33 would not have enough access to clean, safe drinking water. 24 people would not have any electricity. Of the 76 that do have electricity, most would use it only for light at night. In the village, there would be 42 radios, 24 televisions, 14 telephones, and 7 computers. The same 15 villagers would own more than one of each. Seven people would own an automobile out of the 100, several of them owning more than one. Five people would possess 32% of the entire village's wealth, and all of them would be from the United States. The poorest one-third of the people would receive only 3% of the income of the entire village. Some other things to think about. This morning, if you woke up healthy, you're more blessed than the million people who will not survive this week. 
If you've never experienced a danger, a battle, the fear of loneliness or imprisonment, the agony of torture or the pain of starvation, you're better off than 500 million people in the world. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof overhead and a place to sleep, you're more comfortable than 75% of the population of the world. If you have money in the bank and in your wallet and spare change in a dish someplace in your house, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. And if you can read this, you are more blessed than the 2 billion people out of the 6.5 billion people who cannot read at all. You know, the reality of, of a statistical breakdown like this is that just a lot of it's just uh, a picture. But the idea really is this. Do we as a people have a global picture or perspective of the world? Because mission really is about perspective. It's about how we see the world. It's about having an understanding that the world exists beyond our circle here in Oklahoma City. That it exists in places that we've never seen or been. And that as the church, we're called to have our eyes open. You know, this morning I thought I'd approach the idea of mission from a really different standpoint. I may be trying to do way too much here. So if I am, then, well, so be it. But I thought I'd approach it from a different standpoint. I thought I'd approach the idea of mission from the two arguments that I hear the most against the philosophy or understanding of, of mission. So the two, two real perspectives that I hear in opposition to a mission mindset, I thought we'd talk about those. And the reason I think we should talk about those is because we've got to be able to say out loud the things that a lot of us are thinking or feeling or at least are hearing people say or hearing people feel about mission. We've got to be able to at least name them. And so I thought, uh, rather than telling you all the great things that the Bible says about mission, let's unpack them from our reservations. From the standpoint that we say, I don't know about all this, let's take those top two things and let's unpack them together. Because I think if we name those things, we can be very clear about what the Bible says in relation to our greatest arguments to have a mission mindset. So before we do that, we're going to be two places in Scripture. Before we do that, we're going to pray together. But if you've got a Bible, pull it out. If not, we've got some on these little tables um, next to you. We'd love for you to borrow one of those. Um, we're going to be in two places, Acts chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 25. Um, but if you need a Bible, go ahead and grab one. Tom's going to pass some of these around. So um, just stick your hand up as we pray, and he'll put one in your lap. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather in this place. God, we thank you that you love us. And call us into this relationship with you. God, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds today to who you are. That you would give us a, a depth of wisdom and understanding about your heartbeat and call for the church. That we exist as your hands and feet. The hands and feet of Jesus. That's the role of the church. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something new about his character this morning. God, teach me something new about your character. Just whisper that to the Lord in your heart. I pray for someone next to you, beside you. Even if you don't know their name, just pray for them. Just whisper, God, I want you to move in this person's life. Father, we don't invite you in this place. We know you're already here. How we surrender our presence to your presence. God, we pray that you would penetrate our hearts with your word. God, we know that your word is living and active. You tell us that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, we ask that you would allow it to penetrate our hearts. 
Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But God, let us meet you this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in two places. Acts chapter 1, which we've used a lot. You're going to hear me use it a lot more. It's a, it's a real central piece to how we see our existence here at the Vine. Um, and the other one will be Matthew 25. But I want to address these two questions. All right, There are these two arguments that seem to always come up when I talk to, to people about mission and having a global perspective. And the funny thing is, is that these two arguments usually only come up from Christians. Usually when I visit with people that aren't believers or that aren't churchgoers, they don't have an argument for mission. They kind of see the role of of people loving other people. But but the, the church really is the place where I hear these arguments. The first one is this. Why foreign mission? I mean, we have enough problems of our own right here. I mean, right here in Oklahoma City, Trev, we have people that haven't heard the gospel. We have people that are, that are hungry. We have children that are starving. We have homeless people. We shouldn't go and spend our dollars and send our people to other countries until we take care of our own needs here. Let's address the needs that we have, and then we'll work on what's outside of here. Now, you would be surprised how much I hear that. In fact, many of you are sitting here this morning and you're probably thinking that on some level. I mean, why send all these dollars and people globally when we have so many needs right here in our own backyard in Oklahoma City in the United States? Why do that? I mean, why not take care of these needs first and then begin to worry about the world around us? I mean, it's a really common thought. In fact, most of us, if we haven't thought it, know somebody that has. And you would be surprised. I mean, when we were going to Africa last year and we were raising support for, I mean, I must have come across this thought pattern or process ten times with people saying, I don't believe in mission. We have too many needs here. When we take care of those needs here, then we can begin to work on the other countries. And there's a part of me that wants to say this morning, wants to say, you know what, that's a really good question. But I can't. Because it's actually a really bad question. I mean, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that once we solve every problem, every hungry person, every man or woman or child without shelter here in Oklahoma, then we're allowed to move on to the city or Oklahoma City, move on to the state of Oklahoma. And once we take care of every hungry child and every poor person, every struggling individual and share the gospel with every single person in Oklahoma, then we get to move on to the rest of the United States. And after we do the same thing in the United States, only then does the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus get to turn our attention to the world. I mean, surely we don't really believe that because when is the last time that you saw us making progress to solve every problem in Oklahoma City? When's the last time that that you were a part of an effort to end hunger in this city and actually saw it begin to happen? The truth is, is that we can work really hard and we will always have these struggles we can, put, we can mobilize every believer in this city and never solve every problem in our own community. It doesn't mean we give up. It's just the reality. Even if we pooled all our efforts, we aren't going to be able to solve the homeless problem in Houston, in Washington, D.C., in Seattle, in New York City. See, the reality with this argument is that it's from a perspective that says it's about us. It's about me. After I take care of our needs, my needs, then we'll look at the world and say, we have some left over for you. 
it's a really common perspective in our church. In the Christian church, it's a really common perspective that says, we need to fix ourselves before we can begin to work on the world. The reality is, is that Jesus paints a much different picture. He paints a much different perspective that actually says it's not about you or me, but it's about him and his call for the church. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6 through 9. These are going to be very familiar verses because we talk about them quite often, but it just is very important. So Jesus has been crucified, he's been raised from the dead, and he's making these resurrection appearances to people. And he's, he's appearing to the disciples, and they're all gathered together, and he's giving them instructions. And this is what he tells them. When they met together, the Lord who had appeared to them, they said this, Lord, at this time, they're speaking of the resurrected Christ, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set, his, has set on his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken before, up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Jesus is gathered with the believers, those, those group of disciples and people that are left after the resurrection, Jesus is gathering with them, and the disciples ask him this question. They say, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the nation of Israel? Because the disciples, like all the Jews at the time, were expecting Messiah who was going to come and establish a political kingdom and reign like David. They were expecting a king to come in. We talked about this at Palm Sunday. They're expecting a king to come riding in and reestablish a political kingdom to give them an identity as a people and to rule like King David. And even the disciples were still expecting this. I mean, Jesus had been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. He's standing there alive in their presence. And they say, now are you going to redeem us? Now are you going to restore us? You see, the perspective of the disciples at the time was really small. It was still focused on us. It was saying, Jesus, is now the time that we get ours. I mean, we've been put through a whole lot. Are you going to reestablish Israel now? I mean, you and I have a small perspective like that too when it comes to our thinking of the world. It really is me-centered. Jesus, we've got to take care of ourselves, of our own needs. Well, notice Jesus' response to him. He looks at him and says this, It's not for you to know the times or the dates a father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So he's saying, listen, it's not for you to know. You're worried about all the wrong things. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit when the time is right. In other words, God's going to empower you. But he says this. Listen how he wraps, wraps this whole thing up. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. He says, you will be my witnesses. In the Greek, that word witness is a legal term. It actually means you will testify. In other words, you will proclaim what you know about me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. This becomes the call of the church. Now notice these places are really significant. I mean, Jerusalem was where they were. Now a lot of us, when we hear this, we think Jerusalem was like the really sort of comfortable area. It was like our own community, the place where we're really familiar with. We just sort of share the gospel there first. The problem is that's it's a really bad misread. Jerusalem wasn't comfortable for these guys. Most of these guys are from Galilee. They are uneducated fishermen. 
They're gathered in the center of religious life with the most powerful people in the world, in their Jewish world, gathered there. They are not comfortable. Jerusalem was probably the last place that these guys wanted to share the gospel. They would much rather be around their fishermen friends, hanging out by the lake, talking to people about this Jesus. But instead, they're right there in the middle of the temple courts in Jerusalem where people want to kill them. But Jesus says, you're going to be my witness. You're going to testify to what you've seen here in Jerusalem. It means right here where you are, wherever God has placed you. I mean, that's really the call of the church too. That we're called to testify and witness to the goodness of Jesus Christ wherever we are. Work or home or school or whatever. Right where God has placed us. Whether it's comfortable or not. The role of the church is to testify where we are to the good news of Jesus. He also says, you'll be my witnesses in Judea. Which is the bigger picture, the surrounding countryside. That it's not just focused on the religious hub of Jerusalem. We don't have the luxury to just say, we're only going to work here in Oklahoma City. But there's a much bigger picture. There's churches all over this state and this country and people all over the state and this country that are desperate need of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. You'll be my witnesses in Judea. You'll be my witnesses in Samaria. I mean, Samaria is a fascinating place because the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. I mean, they despised them. They were a mixture of Arab and Jewish descent and the Jewish people didn't want to have anything to do with them. In fact, if you were coming from the north, the, the Samaritans occupied what was formerly the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and if you were coming from the north, traveling to Jerusalem, you went 20 miles out of your way to cross the Jordan River, come all the way down and into Jerusalem this way, all so you didn't have to put one foot into Samaria. That's how all the Jews traveled. Well, all of them except Jesus, who seemed to go right through the country quite often. We know that he spent time with a Samaritan woman because he had to go through Samaria. I mean, Jesus broke a lot of these boundaries. But he says, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. In other words, you're going to go places where nobody else wants to go. Where the church is absent. We're called to be. Part of having a perspective on the world is saying, where, is, where are people not hearing the gospel? Where are people not hearing the gospel? Where are people not going? And we need to be willing to go there. I mean, last year when we were in Africa, we walked these trails and we shared the gospel with people who have never heard the name of Jesus. They've never even heard it uttered, spoken. I mean, that's hard for us to believe. I mean, right here in the Bible Belt, in the middle of America, at least people have heard about the name Jesus. They've used it incorrectly or whatever, but they've used the name and they know it. Be my witnesses in Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. A lot of times in our Western culture, we imagine the ends of the earth being other places. But remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem. I mean, we're, America's pretty much the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. I mean, it actually goes out that way. But it's really interesting because the call and perspective of the church is to quit thinking so much about ourselves and begin to think about Jesus. When you read passages like this, we recognize that the church doesn't have the luxury to say, we're just going to take care of our own stuff here at home. And then if we can contribute 2 or 3% of our budget to send some money overseas, then we can pat ourselves on the back and feel really good. We don't get that freedom. The reality is the call of the church is that it's a both and. 
We're committed here in our own area, in our backyard, to loving people, to showing up at church in the park, to feeding the hungry, to clothing the naked, to inviting the stranger. But then we're called to do it over and over again as we expand our boundaries and our understanding of where the ends of the earth are. A church that does not have a heartbeat for a global mission, that does not have a heartbeat for the world, I believe is missing the entire call of Christ. And I literally believe that it's disappointing to God. We do not have the freedom to say, God, we will pick and choose where we share the gospel. And then when we feel like we have completed that task, we will move on. It's both and. We go where we're called to go. But I hear that all the time. I mean, can we really go do foreign mission when we have so many needs here at home? Yes. We can. And we don't have to forsake our own needs here at home to do it. We can do both. And we have to do both. The second kind of argument or question that I hear all the time is, really, Treb, are we doing any good? I mean, you know, we spent so many dollars going to Africa last year or going wherever. We support missionaries that are in Bosnia and Guatemala and China. I mean, is it really doing any good? I mean, really? I mean, even if we share the gospel with a person and feed them for three days, the the fourth day they're going to be hungry. And they're going to go back into their same way of life when you leave or when the missionaries leave. And I mean, are we really accomplishing anything? And any of us that have have done or worked with mission outreach at any level, even if it's just kind of evangelism in our local area, I mean, we've probably come across this on some level and probably have even felt it. I mean, I've sat in in Romanian orphanages and held special needs babies that I knew weren't going to make it because the caring system that's in place is not there for their survival. And I knew that when we left, no one else would pick this child up for years. We've been in Haitian kind of refugee villages in the Dominican Republic where children are starving and recognize that the day after we leave, the food will run out. I mean, last year we we prayed over people that we know today are no longer alive. We do Bible study at Good Home Park every single Wednesday. We've been doing it for months and months and months. And we see the same people oftentimes riddled with addiction. And instead of getting better, they seem to be getting worse. Is it really worth it? Matthew chapter 25, I think, has a really interesting perspective on that question. If you've got it and you want to flip over there, we're going to be in verse 31. Jesus is teaching in parables. He's teaching in parables about the end times and about the kingdom of God. And he teaches this parable that we call the sheep and the goats. And this is what he says. He says that when the Son of Man comes in all of His glory... And all the angels with him. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The king has prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry 
and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And then the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then Jesus goes on and he says the opposite to those gathered on his left. He said, they say, why are we separated? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? And Jesus says, every time you saw one of the least of these and did nothing, then you did that to me. It's actually a picture of judgment. It's a really troubling passage, but really, really powerful. And a lot of us don't know what to do with passages like this in Scripture. Because it actually points out the truth behind 1 John where John's talking about the fact that how we love people is a reflection of our own understanding of God's love for us. First John talks a lot about the fact that how we love people, how we care for them, is a reflection of our understanding of God's love for us. That if we love God, we love people. And Jesus says that when you see someone in, see someone in need, whether they're hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison or as a stranger, and you care for them, It's like we're doing it for him. And he uses a literal kind of comment that whatever you do for the least of these, you do to me. And I find it really fascinating because notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, only feed those who are really thankful. He doesn't say, only give clothes to those people who you see have the best chance at turning their lives around. He doesn't say, only give fresh water to those that aren't riddled with addiction. Jesus doesn't put criteria on any of it. He just says, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give water to the thirsty, invite the stranger, and visit those in prison. When you do that, you do it to me. This is troubling, because there's that part of us that wants to say, You need to put some qualifiers there. Because after I spend six weeks with a person, if I don't see any difference, if they're not making any change, then then I'm moving on to somebody else. Because I'm just wasting my resources. We don't get the luxury when we think about mission to judge based on tangible results. In other words, we don't get to pass judgment on whether or not we love people based on the response we see them making. We judge mission based on obedience. We may feed the same hungry person day after day after day after day after day for years. If God calls us to. See, mission is is based on obedience. It's based on saying yes to God. We don't get to pass judgment on what we think is, is right or what is wrong. We just have to be obedient. And there are times when we'll feel like God is saying, you need to pull back. But mission's based on obedience. And not on our decision. And and, and it actually is an important thought that says, Trevor, are we really doing any good? And my response is, I don't know. 
But I will tell you this, God is calling us to do it. And I want to be obedient to that. And if it's not changing people, it's changing me. Because if you spend any time with our friends in Good Home Park, if you've gone down to church in the park with them, and you spent any time with these guys right here, you recognize that they're amazing people with names that have incredible stories that are struggling and hurting. And when you walk the trails in Africa, or when you spend time in China, or in Central America, and you visit with people, and you listen to their stories, and you realize that they are children of God, is it doing any good? I don't know. But God is changing me. I could probably make an argument for how good it's doing. But why? Why bother? Because it doesn't matter. What matters is that we're giving our best for the Lord every single day. That we're sacrificing whatever we need to sacrifice to say yes to Jesus. Because it's not about you and me. It's about Jesus. And as a church, my heartbeat for us is that we would be so mission-minded that it would affect the very way that we see people both right here in our own backyard and to the very ends of the earth. That we become a community of people that have a global mindset and a local passion. Because whether you like it or not, whether you want to hear me say it or not, mission is not a choice. It's a command from God. So we might as well get used to the idea and decide that we're going to be a church that's going to be involved in mission by the way that we live. And if you can't go, then you support it. If you can't support it financially, you support it prayerfully. If you can't always support it prayerfully, you support it emotionally by loving those people. Mission is about perspective. It's about changing the way that we see the world. And we all need a change of perspective from time to time. Our second value as a community is to be mission, missionally focused. It's who we want to be. What that means is that we want our focus to not be on ourselves. Do you know that, that churches in the United States, that they spend on the average 89.5% of every dollar on themselves and their own facility. And then the remaining 10.5% is split between efforts in the United States at 7% and 3% of those dollars go somewhere else. You know that most church facilities in the United States take up 60, 60% of their income. The other 30% is usually on personnel or some level of program and personnel. But most churches are so in debt with their facilities, that's where all their dollars go. This is really not about you and I. It's about deciding that we're going to be a people with a perspective that says, God, we want to see the world through your eyes. Take a look at this video as you let those things sink in. If you believe the Bible then when you look at this place and you look at the people that live on this trash dump, you will...